Tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 20. And let me bring up my notes here. Tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' teachings uh, to the disciples we, and uh, their impact upon the world. Impact, impact into their society, impact in, in um, their community for the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, we... We hear stories of different people and different missionaries. You hear a lot of uh, great things about them and their impact and the society in which they go to minister. And I, uh, there's this one doctor, John Getty. He was a Presbyterian missionary, and he went to uh, Anedom. I'm not sure if I'm saying that island. It's an island in, so- in the South Pacific. But he was... Uh, he went in 1848 and worked there for uh, God for 24 years. And on a tablet that was erected to his memory uh, in the church where he preached, uh, these words were inscribed. It says, when he landed in 1848, there were no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathens. You can make a difference if you die to self and live for Christ. And really, what Jesus is describing now, after we've left the Beatitudes, the characteristics of the disciple of Jesus, the uh, ethic in which they operate by, Jesus is going to talk about the disciple's impact in the world. And so let's look at our passage tonight, Matthew 5, 13 through uh, 20, sorry. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Sorry, we are only covering through 16. I kept saying 20, but we're going through 16. We're going to look at that passage right there tonight. So we see Jesus begin to teach, and he's using two metaphors, right? He's using salt and light. And he's going to use these metaphors to draw attention to the impact upon the disciples in the world. You see, both salt and light are natural things that we have that we can see that make an impact when they are used. 
You know, we have, uh, many men have expounded upon this and drawn out every option possible about salt, you know, preserves and all these other things. But I want to hone in on exactly what, how Jesus is using it. And that is that the salt is making an impact on the earth, uh, making an impact. And he is saying to his followers, the disciples, remember we covered that at the beginning of our study, that when Jesus went up onto the mountain, it says that his disciples came to them, came to him, and he began to teach them. And so we get this picture of Jesus teaching his disciples, but also the crowds, as we'll, we see periodically through chapters 5 and 7, are gathered around and they're listening to the teaching as well. So we have those that have chosen to follow Jesus, had denied all, left all to follow him. And then we have those that are surrounding, that are listening and having to make a decision about Jesus. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those that have just heard him teach about the ethic of, of the kingdom, how they are to behave, what the characteristics are of a disciple, even some of the things that will happen to a disciple, specifically persecution. Uh, they just heard all of this, and then he goes on to say, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So when this metaphor is used, Jesus is using it as a warning. I've just instructed you on the characteristics of the kingdom. But he says, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? This is a, a, he's dealing with the aspect of the disciples. They are meant to have an impact in the world. But what if that impact is lost? How are they to regain that? And the answer for this is you can't really make salt salty again. Saltless, tasteless salt is useless. And that's what Jesus says. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So let's look at this salt. It was in, in the history of the Bible, salt, uh, we see it mentioned in Leviticus as a, a, a thing that God had commanded them to season their sacrifices with when they were to present their sacrifices to him. The sin offering, the uh, atonement sacrifice, the uh, peace offerings, those kinds of things, all their offerings, they were all had an element of salt that was involved. Now, the priest would partake of those sacrifices uh, they weren't just, you know, there was only one real sacrifice that was burnt completely that no one ate of. But all the other ones, there's portions of that sacrifice that were given to the, the priests and the, and the um, helpers, the other priests, uh, to share and to live off of. And so they would have salt, which would season and flavor these, these sacrifices. It says in Leviticus 2.13, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offerings. And with all your, all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So salt was something that mattered. It was something that was a part of their worship unto God. And it was used for seasoning. And then you got Job, who's in, in his, you know... In his speeches, in Job 6.6, 6, he goes, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? <laughs> or is there any taste in the whites of an egg? 
you know, we all taste, you know, have you, you guys eat hard-boiled eggs? Have you ever had those? Yeah? Man, if you don't put any kind of salt on them, they're just kind of like, you know. I love deviled eggs. Those are, ooh, man, I could pound those left and right. But um, even every morning I've been making my lunches for work and stuff, and I have hard-boiled eggs that I take with me, you know. And I have to throw salt on them. I, find, I go in that little pot of some uh, salt and I sprinkle it all over them. It makes it so tasty when I have them in the next morning. But Job is saying it, it was, it's a main way to season food. Heather and I love watching the cooking competitions and it's like, that's the critique. Oh, it's way too salty. Not enough salt. It's always salt. There's something that, and that could make or break a whole dish. That could get them kicked off the show or... Um, just salted just right and then just elevates the dish but we know that salt a little bit does a lot as well but the metaphor it's an illustration really a warning against becoming tasteless and the only use for tasteless salt is to be thrown out so salt that does not flavor it's worthless it cannot be made salty again and has no other use. It's good as dirt. Think through this. The disciple who is not flavoring those around him or her is not actually a disciple. So salt that has no taste is not actually doing the job of, a, of salt. And it's important that the important quality to note is that salt ought to maintain its basic character. And if it fails to be salty, it has lost its purpose for existence and should be discarded. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, right? We're, you, we're teasing out this metaphor, but Jesus is really calling attention to the importance of the character of his disciples. They, his disciple is to have impact in the world around them. And Really, what I'm seeing here is that if, as that disciple begins to lose any kind of impact in the world, really, they're going to be trampled out by the world. They're going to be taken out by the world. They're going to be brought into bondage to sin and, and, and involved in things that dishonor the Lord. And we see this actually played out in the life of Israel and some of the people that God has chosen to work with throughout all of history. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But the only suitable thing for tasteless salt is to be thrown out on the ground. Just as tasteless salt lacks value to the person who uses it, so does a professed disciple without genuine commitment prove valueless for the work of the kingdom. So he's given them the characteristics of the, of the disciple in verses 1 through 12. He's given them that he goes, if those things are not prevalent, you're not going to have an impact for the kingdom. I want to dig a little bit further in what's meant by tasteless. How do you lose your flavor? If we are the salt of the earth, what does it mean to be tasteless? That's part of it, yes. Contamination is part of it. But the word tasteless is used to describe foolish, to make dull, not acute, 
to cause something to lose its taste or the purpose for which it exists. So it carries with that as contaminated. There's, there was pictures of, of uh, men in antiquity who had found great resources of salt and then they went and they stored it into these homes and these little homes and places of storage and then when they went to go use it after it had been there for a long time that only some of it was usable because they had taken all the salt and put it on piled it up on the ground and then just covered it well all of the salt that had been touching the ground had become had lost its taste it had it had absorbed whatever moisture and things that were in the ground it was putrid it wasn't good and that was kind of the picture that was painted but the word uh Tasteless is actually used to describe foolishness in other parts of the Bible. So we have Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts was darkened. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So it's, they weren't actually wise. They were foolish to think that they were wise and that they had all this wisdom. But the reason they were foolish is because they did not acknowledge God. They didn't give him thanks. And they had lost any sort of impact that they could have in the world because they were seeking after it apart from him. And then you have 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That word foolish is the same word translated tasteless. And we see here that, that Paul is writing and he's, he's saying, has God not made of no effect the wisdom of this world? Has he made it putrid, unusable? Because they were seeking to be wise apart from God. And so we get this idea, and then the other two times that this word is translated, it is in the passage in Luke referring to the salt losing its flavor or, its t- or becoming tasteless. So tasteless is, a descriptive, is descriptive of becoming foolish or to show to be foolish. It's... it's drawn out you can actually see the foolishness or it's something that has declined into foolishness so jesus i found that connection to being foolish reminded me of chapter seven let's look at chapter seven we went over this on our first week here in verse 24 it says therefore Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall." You see the the connection there. The the wisdom is seen in somebody who hears and follows through and does. So 
the opposite of tastelessness or, or their foolishness, as, as Jesus is describing, means that to be salty, we need to hear his words and continue in his ways, in his teachings. That's what makes us salty. That's what provides impact in the world as we live out our lives. It's by taking heed to his word. A foolish man will hear the words but not do them. So one of these disciples could start off listening but not actually carry them out. Not actually do them. And they would become tasteless. And they're no use as a disciple any longer. And the image is that to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I believe that that's really what happens if somebody decides they do not want to follow Jesus anymore, that ultimately they're trampled out by the world. They don't have the Savior to hold on to. They don't have the wisdom of his ways to conduct their lives. And you're left in in just vulnerable state. But look at closer what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt. Not you will be as though it were something they had to wait for or accomplish or even become. He didn't say you have the salt as though it were a tool that was given to them. But the salt describes the disciples as a whole, us, the church, the bride of Christ. We are the salt of the earth. It's through Jesus' disciples following his words, his ethic, that we are the salt and will have an impact on the world. One uh, commentary that I read, a biblical illustrator, it says, The church exists for the world's sake more than its own. Christ's disciples are to be saviors of others. We exist to proclaim the kingdom, to live lives that honor him and glorify him, as we'll see in the next bit of our study tonight. But we are to be those examples to the world of a kingdom that is not a part of this world. It's not associated with some sort of political viewpoint. It's not associated with some sort of movement. It's associated with Jesus' person, who he is. We are his people in his kingdom. And it's by living according to his standards that we really stand out. It's by walking in his ways that people see things different in us. We might not notice it sometimes, but it's, it is visible to them. The second metaphor that Jesus use, uses is of light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. As a disciple of Jesus, he calls them the light of the world. It really wasn't a new concept for the Jew who was listening to Jesus teach. Israel was called to be a witness of God to the nations, drawing the nations to God, but instead they became like the other nations. They actually became tasteless salt, if, to use Jesus' analogy. If we look at Isaiah, he's speaking to uh, a nation who is in exile. It says, uh, it's the Lord speaking to a nation who is in exile. They weren't, Israel was not in the land. And, but he's speaking these words of promise over them. He's reminding them of what God, what he had called them to be originally. But in Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 8, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He says in Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is too small, is it? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see the, the usage of light there? This was not a new concept for the, the Jew. Sometimes, um, you know, as Gentiles reading this, we're not as familiar with our Old Testament. And so some of these little key phrases kind of fall on us. But Israel was always called to be a light to the world. And they were to live according to Yahweh's instruction, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, as it's most commonly referred to. They were to live by this standard in order to proclaim God, creator God, Yahweh God, to the world. They were to be a beacon where the people living in darkness would come and see and know him. But Israel didn't do that. What do we have uh, described for us in the Old Testament? That they join themselves to the God's of the nations around them. They began in Bible language to play the harlot. Their commitment to God was broken by themselves and they joined themselves to false idols, which led them to become exiled. God gave them over to their sin 
they didn't want a relationship with him, he wasn't going to force them. They were always called to be a light to the nations. And then we fast forward a couple thousand years, and Jesus shows up on the scene to actually do this work. Let's look at John chapter 1. John, in writing about Jesus in his introduction to his gospel, says, in the beginning, starting in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So Jesus came as the light of life. And it says that men did not comprehend it or overtake it. Different words that are used there. But it, John goes on to say here, it says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light. John came before Jesus and was saying, hey, there's going to be this guy that comes along, the Messiah, he's coming. But he, he says, so that all might believe through him. John testified about the light so that all might come to Jesus through his testimony. It says in verse 8, he was not the light but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. How crazy is that? Jesus, the light of the world, comes on the stage. The creator of the world and his creation didn't even recognize him. It says he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He was rejected by Israel, the people who had been promised the Messiah from the get-go. But as many as received him, so some received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus shows up on the scene and he receives disciples. He receives believers. He's proclaimed as the light of the world. The light come into the world, the source of the light. And then Jesus now turns around and goes, you are the light of the world. You see, Jesus is creating for himself his own special people. He's preaching repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all who will believe in him and follow him, he turns around and says, you are the light of the world. He's commissioning them to continue on in his ministry because he knows his days are limited, right? They will continue that ministry of being the light in the world as Jesus ascends to heaven until the day he returns. 
And that light is to reach out among the nations. We have the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Go into all the world, starting in Judea and uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the world, right? We're supposed to go out making disciples. So Jesus started it, and we're to continue the work as we wait for his return. Living in accordance to the ethic that he set forth for us. See, Jesus then draws out his analogy here. He says, uh, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. You see, light is for illumination. It has impact. There's been great, you know, uh, the illustration. I've, how many of you guys have been in caves before? You know, or gone and visited a cave. And they go down there and like, watch, you're going to see total pitch black darkness, absence of light. And they turn off the lights down there. And you're just like, oh, can't, you know, you just, you can almost feel it. It's so dark. It's weird, right? Well, light, they flip, they light a, a lighter or flick a match and it illuminates the whole area. And you can see because it's so dark, even the small match will illuminate so much. It has impact. And that's what Jesus is talking about with his disciples. As the light of the world, you are to impact the world. It alters the scene in which it occupies. It changes it from one state to another. From darkness to light. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of, wick, of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. See that contrast there? The righteous, they, they actually illuminate. They, they shine brighter. And as time goes on, they get brighter and brighter. But the darkness, they can't see nothing. The wicked, I mean, they can't see nothing. They're in darkness and they can, they can trip. They, they don't even know what it is they're tripping over. We see the writer of Proverbs contrasting righteous living as illuminating, growing stronger and, and more beautiful. But the wicked, he describes it as darkness and stumbling. It's interesting. The life of the disciple will either illuminate or it will be extinguished. You see that word, it says, um, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Or uh, in some translations, it will say bushel. All it was was like a measuring cup. It'd be like going into your cupboard and pulling the drawer out and grabbing your half cup or whatever, and then going over to a, a lamp and then covering it. You can't cover really a, a candle or a lamp without extinguishing it. You void it of oxygen or, you know, for the sake of the illustration, there's always some alter, you know. <laughs> well, well, what if you do this? And then, you know, it still lights, but whatever. You know what I mean? You're, you cover it, it actually will become extinguished. It doesn't give out light. It's not accomplishing anything. And these were all common elements in a household. A lampstand usually was placed in... Uh, most of the houses were single rooms where they would gather in and they would put the lamp, uh, the candle holder or the oil lamp holder on this, 
in a corner and then they put the lamp up there and it would illuminate the area for everybody. But the light was to be placed on the stand for all to see, not understand, not to look at the light, but for all to be able to see in the room, right? To see stumbling blocks, to see another person, to see you know, what they were eating or, or the thing that they were working on. The lamp wasn't to draw attention to itself, but it was placed in such a way that it would illuminate things for other people. So the light here, as Jesus explains it, allows others to see, and it doesn't draw attention to itself. So the impact of a disciple upon those they are around should be one that illuminates by our actions, by the, how we conduct ourselves, really will illuminate the darkness that somebody is in. Those who do not know Christ around us. It illuminates. You think about, you show up at work or... Um, somebody you know and you're you're talking about Jesus and you're talking about what he's doing in your life or you're just doing it and by doing what God has called you to do you're stirring their hearts and they're reminded of things that they've gone through and they're seeing a peace or a hope they're seeing some sort of love that doesn't exist in their own life but is contained in you as you follow Jesus it's, it's shedding light on the darkness. They don't know about this love. They don't know about the things they're stumbling over. But as you live out for Jesus, you become that light that they can see. They're like, whoa, okay, so something's wrong in, in my life. Something's not lining up. And then you have that person that will come up to you and go, so, hey, I want to talk to you about this. Like, I just, I, I'm stumbling over this thing. I keep messing up with this thing or, or this thing is not right in my life. I'm buttoned heads somehow in some way. Uh, this, is, this is happening in my life. Why is that? Or can you pray for me? What do you, do you know that has caused you to be this way? And they, they want to find answers. They come to the light to find answers. And this is the thing. Jesus says in verse 16, as he wraps up our passage we're covering tonight, he says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. So the, the good works, the things we do are to be seen by men, but what, who do they glorify? Your father who is in heaven. Remember, the light isn't meant to draw attention to itself but to illuminate the room for everyone else. And it's by uh, us living according to God's word that the illumination is happening and they're concentrating on the light who has come into the world, Jesus. We're just illuminating him in our lives. Jesus is opposed to doing good works. For what? Publicly. For our own honor. We'll see that as we move on in chapter 6. To be seen by people. 
if we're only doing things to be seen by people, we already have our reward. That's it. We're not actually benefiting the kingdom at all. You could say you become tasteless. The distinction here is that those who do good works publicly is for God's honor. So we have to, uh, or this distinction exhorts us to guard the motives of our heart and consider the effects of our public activities and pronouncements, what our public activities and pronouncements have on the spread of the gospel and honoring of God among all people groups. Did you catch that? We got to check our hearts, make sure that what we're doing actually is bringing honor to him. Um, I brought it up about going to get Micah his passport the other day and get that. Well, where are you going? Well, I'm taking a team to Honduras uh, from our church. Oh, that's good job, man. And I just want to cower at that. You know, I want to like, please don't applaud. It's just something we do as a church. You know, it's like, you know, but that's how the world sees it. They see it as some sort of humanitarian thing. And then he goes, so what will you do on that trip? Well, we'll go and we serve people and we serve the people that we um, the missionaries that we support. We'll do certain things to just help people out. And, and, but there's an element of where we get to tell people about Jesus and, and all about how we've been saved by him. There's an uh, evangelistic element to it as well. We want people to know about Jesus. And that's what we have to check. Am, am I just doing these things for my own glory or am I doing these things uh, for the glory of God? And the Lord is the one who knows the heart. He's the one who checks the heart. So we have the images of salt and light that evoke consideration less of what we do than of what we are. Remember last week, the disciple is the one who follows Jesus. Or not last week, but the week before. The disciple is the one who hears what God says, or what Jesus' Jesus's words, and he does them. It's not about necessarily the activities in and of themselves that we do, but the response to his words. Are we disciples? So Jesus has called his disciples to a specific role, and that is to be salt and light. As we follow him, as we begin to take on his priorities, begin to live out that ethic of the kingdom, seeking peace, being peacemakers, seeking to be merciful, gentle, hungering for righteousness, thirsting for righteousness, standing for righteousness, even if it means persecution. It's those things that will illuminate and impact the world around us. Now, that's kind of the heart for a lot of my age people. We, younger, you start out in college and you're like, I want to impact the world for Jesus, or I want to have an impact greater than in in my life and the people I love, I want to impact those around me. 
Impact was such a big deal. Want to want to do something. And then time goes on and you're like, oh, I don't feel as impactful anymore. And what it is, is we're looking for within our own selves and our own efforts to try to be an impact around rather than following Jesus and letting him use us how he sees fit to impact those around us. Spending time listening to him, listening to his word, taking that word and uh, applying it to our lives and living within what he has, he has called us to do in obedience where he gets the glory. That's really the fulfilling impact that we can have, the most fulfilling impact we can have. It's by following him. And so, tonight, disciples and the impact in the world is what Jesus is, is covering in these few verses, these four verses. Next week, we're going to see how Jesus, you look at verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And Jesus is going to confront some of their traditions, some of the ways that the law had been taught. You look at verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, but verse 22, but I say to you, therefore, and he gives a response. Verse 27, you have heard. Verse 28, but I say to you. He's speaking with authority. He's speaking in response to the law. That's something that would have been held so far above any other man's authority. But Jesus is saying, my words, they carry the same weight as the law. You have heard, but I say to you. And he's going to do this like four or five times. He's going to correct their false understanding of the law, and he's going to bring it down really to the heart of the matter. And so I'll encourage you, read through the, or read through the Sermon on the Mount this week, grab a cup of coffee, find a nice little spot, lock yourself in the bathroom if you have to, and read the Sermon on the Mount and let God's word just resonate within your heart. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this evening and for our time together in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would, um, Lord, first off, just cleanse us and wash us, Lord. Uh, there are motives that we always wrestle with of, uh, you know, doing good things for you and, and not uh, looking good uh, before other men or women, Lord. But, um, Lord, really, your, um, your thoughts are the ones that we are concerned about, Lord. And so, Lord, as you have called us and have made us salt and light in this world, I pray that you would empower us to do so. Lord, that um, by faith, Lord, we would be able to just uh, engage, Lord, and do what you have called us to do, Lord. In the areas of, of um, our lives, Lord, the places that you've planted us, Lord, at, um, at jobs or at home or uh, in the community in certain ways, Lord, that you would uh, use us to just bring uh, glory to the Father, Lord, and that um, Lord, we would just find such utter fulfillment, Lord, in knowing, Lord, that ours is the kingdom of heaven, Lord, 
in all the precious promises that we have in you, Lord. We have everything we need in you. So, Father, we just um, commit this time to you, Lord. I pray over this week and all the, the remainder uh, of the things we have to do and moving into this weekend, Lord. We just ask that you would um, bless those times, Lord. We'd be satisfied in you, Lord, this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.